this is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number nine of the series, Spotlight. Under the same heading in our last meeting together, we were considering particularly knowledge and acknowledgement. And it led us, among other passages, to the Proverbs, in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Incidentally, in case anyone didn't get it before, that word direct in Timothy's Bible was precisely the very word used to Timothy in the English expression, rightly dividing. So he had no need for anyone to tell him what it meant. It was to rightly divide a pathway, like a finger post. Well, this evening, we are continuing the thought, if God directs our paths, that is another way of saying he leads us. And quite a number of God's children are continually either using the expression, I felt led, which sometimes is a very misleading expression and one to be avoided, or they are not conscious that leading is theirs as a part of redemption. Let me explain what I mean. Can you say from a full heart, the Lord is my shepherd? And all that that involves with regard to redemption and so on. Well, if you can say that, you can say the next thing. He leadeth me. You don't have to ask the shepherd to lead you. It's implicit. I don't say that we should never ask the Lord to lead us because that may be just too severe. But I have a feeling that our prayers would be more full and more completely answered if sometimes we acknowledged that the Lord is leading us but our problem is the following. He doesn't drag us by the scruff of our neck. He says, follow me. Or the apostle says, follow me. But it's up to us whether we do sometimes or not because it's in the realm of practice. So let's leave them together, shall we? God's leading is ineffectual if there is no corresponding following. And the following is a part of his gracious concern for us that it links us to his leading. Well now let's take a few passages of scripture which may throw further light upon this question of leading. And the first passage I would like you to turn to is the last chapter of the book of Exodus. The last chapter of the book of Exodus. And there are two features that I think should be kept in mind all the time we consider the question of the Lord's leading. And you will notice the opening verse, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month shalt thou set up the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. And then, presently, we have the statement in verse 18, and Moses reared up the tabernacle. And verse 19, he spread abroad the tent. And then comes the refrain, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now look at the end of verse 21, as the Lord commanded Moses. And look at the uh, end of verse 23, and it goes on. It doesn't put two dots and say ditto, it spreads it out every time. 
Here is a repeated insistence down this chapter on the one fact that in this closing chapter it's recorded that Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Well, that has reference to the word of God. Now look at the next thing. It says in verse 33, And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the hanging of the court gate, so Moses finished his work. Finished the work. Well now, a Christian can only read the words finished work without thinking of that supreme finished work which Christ accomplished on Calvary. So if we were permitted then to link these two together, as the Lord commanded Moses refers to the word of God and the finished work refers to the work of Christ and those two combined, the redeeming work of Christ and the complete word of God leads to what? These words. It says in verse um, 36, And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Throughout all their journeys. Sometimes they were rebellious people and had to be chastised. But from the moment that tabernacle was finished, the cloud, whether it be day or night, never left them till they reached the River Jordan and the land of promises in front of them. Now there's a typical lesson there for us all, you see. A, legit, a, a legitimate one. And I think most of us can realise that this must be true. Without the finished work of Christ and without the completed word of God, the question of leading hardly comes in. But the moment we realise that he has gone before, made all this preparation, and we get the assurance that he never left them day or night until the end of their journey was reached, surely this should be a wording season for every one of us. Well, now let's take a little, another stage. We come back to Psalm 32 that we read just now. It says in verse 8, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. I don't know whether you know Sparrow's translation of the Old Testament. Sparrow was a lady who gave great care in balancing and analysing the Hebrew Scriptures and it's a very, very good translation to refer to if you can get a copy. Unfortunately, I did have a copy but I had to let it go. But her translation gives this. I can't give you every word, but it gives this. I will guide thee with mine eye. She suggests that we read nod to. It's the mistress just giving a nod to the servant. Now you see, here's an important point coming out. You might be looking all over the place and you could hear what somebody says. But if the mistress nods to you and you're looking somewhere else, you don't see it, do you? So your eyes must be on him if he's going to guide you with his eye. So that's another lesson, I think, that we could take to heart. It's no good grumbling because we're not being led if our eyes are on all sorts of objects instead of his. We don't have to follow those. 
We don't have to follow the opinions of our friends. Although we must be very, very gentle in refusing them sometimes. But we must ever keep our eyes upon him. And he will guide us with his eye. He will nod to us without a word said. And somebody else will know, not know that a guidance has been given us, but we shall. So I think there's two thoughts. There's the provision made by God for the guidance of this people right through their 40 years in the wilderness. And you did notice that God changed it. It was a pillar of cloud by day, but it's a pillar of fire by night. So if your circumstances are day one, you'll have one kind of guidance. And if you're in the night of darkness, he'll give you another kind of guidance so that you shall see. He, he meets your circumstance. And you have to, of course, retranslate this over and over again as days go by. So there's two features with regard to the question of guidance. Psalm 123 might be added to this while we have the Psalms in front of us. Psalm 123 Unto thee lift I up my eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of a mistress, so our eyes wait upon thee, the Lord our God, until that he have mercy upon us. So you see that idea of the eye being the servant's eye looking at the master or the mistress is confirmed by this other passage of scripture. Now let's turn back again to Psalm 107. There are two passages with regard to the leading of the Lord that it is sometimes wise for us to put together. Psalm 107, verse 7. This is a psalm dealing with the movements of the children of Israel and uh, supplementing in some measure the passage we had in Exodus chapter 40. It says in 107 verse 7 And he led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city of habitation. He led them forth by right way and most of us in the ordinary everyday circumstances would say, well, that's what we must expect when God leads. It will be a right way. But don't be too glib over that, friends, because you may be up against a circumstance and all the leading of the Lord seems to be leading you, what should I put it, in a roundabout way? And you begin to wonder. So will you turn to another passage where you get that very expression? Exodus 13. It's a right way, remember, but see what it says here. Exodus 13, verse 17 and 18. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh had led the people go, that God led them, not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. Now that's a temptation frame, you see. Even this present world has got a proverb a shortcut is often the longest way round. And possibly there are some of you here say, yes, don't I know that to be sorrow? He says, let's read it again. 
And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest peradventure the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness. He led them round about. So God leads you a right way, but at the self same time he leads you a roundabout way because he sees a lot more than you do. Have you never, in your experience, looked back over a part of your life and said, oh, I am thankful God shut that door? You were clamouring away for all your worth. This is the one thing I must have. Oh, this is most obviously the will of the Lord. And then you suddenly realise he was gracious enough not to take you at your word. He led this people a roundabout way because it was right and proper for them although the shortcut was through the land of the Philistines. But as we've said, the shortcut can often be the longest way round. So we get these little sidelights upon that which is a very practical issue with every one of us, the Lord's leading and how it is brought about and its characteristics. Another word of warning, I think, might be lifted from the book of Proverbs. Of course, the Proverbs has to do with wisdom and guidance in connection with one's walk and Matter of Life, chapter 21, verse 2. Verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Well, if it was right in his own eyes, I suppose that poor wretch would never get anywhere. But there's always a warning. Don't put all your trust in your own conception. There's another side. The Lord pondereth the hearts. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. It's more important that your heart should be right than that your feet should be in a certain direction. Let's take you another one that has a certain amount of uh, reference to this. Proverbs 16, verse 25. Proverbs 16.25 There is a way that seemeth right unto a man. It's warning you again. All your experiences and the advice of your friends and so on and your heart's desire on top of it seems right. But the end thereof are the ways of death. So you see there's evidently a reason why God should put this in the word more than once, to warn us that his leading is a right one, but his leading may be a roundabout one. His leading will always be in harmony with the circumstances, whether it's day or night. But don't forget that when you make up your mind to do a thing, it may be a wrong leading. And so we have to be very, very careful and prayerful that we do not mistake our ideas and call it the will of the Lord. Now shall we look at Deuteronomy chapter 8 for another light upon the circumstances of some of our experiences in life as what the purpose is. Deuteronomy chapter 8. 
verses 2 and 3. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness. Well, they had an experience which I suppose they never could forget, those people. Think of when they came out of Egypt and into that wilderness and there was no water. And when they did come to a well, it was bitter. And then when the tree was put in and made the water sweet again, a first lesson was learned that it wasn't the world itself that would provide, it was the tree which has a significance in the scriptures all the way through. Then after that, they came to the palm trees and the wells and they were able to settle for a time. So that there is this thought here. Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness. And these are the reasons to humble thee. For most of us have got a certain amount of pride that is destructive and needs to be curbed. To prove thee. You see, sometimes we read the word temptation and we think it means tempting us to do evil. But the word temptation also means to test and to try. To, not to tempt to do wrong, but to test and try whether you will believe in spite of circumstances. So it goes on, to humble thee, to prove thee, to know what is in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee, and he suffered thee to hunger, and he fed thee. You see, God did both. It doesn't say God fed them with manna and they suffer with hunger sometimes for some reason no one could give. God says I was responsible for both. I suffered thee to hunger. I fed thee with bread from heaven for manna, which thou knowest not, knewest not, neither did thy fathers know. And here's the reason coming out. That, that, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only. The physical body Yes, but the spiritual side, no. Not merely that which the world provides is not enough. Man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. And you remember that our Saviour, who took our place and in our stead, he went through this. He was 40 days, not 40 years, but symbolically the same. 40 days in a wilderness and was hungered and then came the tempting or the testing, if thou be the Son of God, come on these stones and then they made bread. And the Lord quoted this, quoted this. And so we, if he took that line, most surely we must take that line. That instead of being surprised or grumbling or murmuring because of circumstances that come our way, say, well, he knows our hearts, he knows our faults, he knows our weaknesses and these testings are very, very necessary that we may please him and be walking worthy of the calling and adorning the doctrine of God our Saviour which should be our great desire. So the Lord does lead and he's given us certain index uh, as to the way in which it is done. There's one little part in Ezra if you will turn to chapter 8 which always appeals to me chapter 8 and we've all got our own peculiar independent I didn't mean to say the word independent make up 
because that's just the point. I'm afraid I have an exceedingly personal, independent nature. And uh, I've never run after a gift, and I don't think I ever shall. In fact, my mother told me when I was grown up that I embarrassed her, because instead of taking a penny from a friend who came to visit us, I said, no, thank you, I've got my own money box, walk away, as a kid. Well, that's all very well in so, so far, but so far, we could go too far. Now it says here, Ezra chapter 8. Ezra is leading the people back from captivity to Jerusalem to restore the city and build the temple. And here it says in chapter 8, 21, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God and seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. Well, now what's the matter with the man? Oh, we haven't let him finish. What's his trouble? For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. Now, do you feel any sort of echo in your heart? I was ashamed to ask this man, who was not a man of God, I was ashamed to ask him to give me protection, because I had already stood in his presence, and I had boasted in his presence that the Lord our God we serve, he can protect, he can supply, he can lead. Oh, that's an attitude, friends, we want to remember, when sometimes we get an easy way given to us, but it means compromising with the world that knows not God and is not in line with his purposes. Let us now turn to the Acts of the Apostles. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 13, verse 2, and you will remember that this is where the Apostle got his first great call. Verses 1 and 2. Now there were in the church of us at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas, and Simeon that was called Niger, and Luke, Lucas of Cyrene, and Manian, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and just thrown in at the end, someone the name of Saul. That's where he stood in the list of the first case, Saul, and Saul, like that you see. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas. I think he came first, didn't he? Yes. And Saul, he came last. For the work whereunto I have called them. So here is the call of Barnabas and Saul. And they start on their journey. Well, now as a consequence, we come to chapter 16 to see a little word on <coughs> the way in which the Lord sometimes leads. These men have taken the Lord at his word and they've gone across part of the ocean. They've landed on the south shores of the what we call Asia Minor and now we discover that was already called Galatia in this day and they've gone up country. Chapter 16, verse 6. 
Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, don't read the word Asia to mean that which includes China and the East. This is Asia Minor, as we call it now, for distinction. They were in Asia Minor. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. Notice that? They'd gone out at the call of the Holy Ghost. They'd gone to this place ready to preach, and then they were forbidden. Well, that's strange at first, isn't it? After they had come to Mysia, they assayed to go into Bithynia. And the Spirit suffered them not. That's twice. Well, what are we going to do? Do we turn back and go home? I don't think the Apostle will be very pleased with that idea. But it was a baffling thought. They'd come to preach and they couldn't go to the left and they couldn't go to the right. Well, there's only one other way to go then it's go on, isn't it? Don't you see, friends? Sometimes the way that the Lord leads you is by shutting doors. Shutting doors. I can see a little tiny toddler going along the passage there's a half-open door that leads downstairs where you keep your firewood and that. And somebody leans over and just shuts the door like that in time. The Lord has to do that for us sometimes, friends. Here are these men. Bithynia? I seem to hear about Bithynia. Oh, Peter was there. Or he was going there. Oh, the Lord said, Bithynia's all right, Paul. You needn't worry. I've got my messenger for Bithynia. You've got something else to do. I'm leading you by shutting doors. So let's see the sequel. After they were come to Mysia, and they stayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. That is the ancient Troy. Right on the northern coast of Asia Minor. Right up the other side, you see. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia. Macedonia, well that's in Europe, that's the other side. There stood a man in Macedonia and prayed him saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. What was the consequence of that vision? And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavoured to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Isn't it good that they didn't try to burst those doors open which the Spirit had shut? Isn't it good that they waited? Isn't it good that they realised? Here was an opening that they never dreamed of. It's possible Paul had had never given a thought to going into Europe itself. But here he was. He'd seen the vision. And they crossed. And the first company to be ever formed in Europe as a little company of believers was Philippi. Philippi. And it all took place when the Apostle found a group of women at a little prayer meeting on the banks of the river. And when he writes to the Philippians, he says, help those women which have served with us in the gospel. So God can use, you see, those that were in some measure set aside in the ordinary way. He could use shut doors to lead. And what a blessed thing is that they responded to the vision. For if he had never gone to Philippi, he may never have gone 
to Rome. He may never have gone to Corinth. We may never have had those mighty epistles to the Ephesians and whatnot. God is not tied to one person, but he had chosen this man, and blessed be God, he followed the leading of the Lord. Most of us, I think, can bring out of our own experiences, if we've lived long enough, indications that there are evidences of leading about which we know very little at first. I think you will pardon me if I just say, when I look back 50, 60 years, I can see what I didn't see then. Most of you know that I was born and brought up in Bermondsey. And to this day, if a novelist wants to write about a terrible person, you read a line in the mystery thriller, and there was a dreadful thud, and Bermondsey Bill streaked out into the night. You see, that's the sort of... I was very near the River Thames and its dockland, and a tremendous lot of poor children. Only a, a, a you may say, five minutes walk from where I lived was a ragged school, where there were hundreds of boys and girls who had no shoes, no stockings, just bare feet. There was I. I left my school when I was 14 and I got a heartbreaking job in Mincy Lane. I was the eldest of a family and all the rest were girls. But as I was four years older than my sister, when I was 10, the eldest girl was six. So you know who did the washing up in our home to help mother, don't you? You know who had to do the cleaning of the windows. You know, ah, yes, that was me. And if I didn't get into a job in Vincent laying in a tea broker's office and did a lot more of it. Then, I think I've told you this story before, I got so weary of this job that I manoeuvred and got the sack when I was 15. And when I was 25, I was taking a party around the British Museum and a little crowd was standing there and one of the public drew near as he had every right to listen to me. And when I dismissed them and said, I'll meet round there, I turned to him and said, you seem to be very interested. He said, I am. I said, you don't recognise me. He said, no. I said, you gave me the sack ten years ago. You see, 15 and 25, and that boy that got the sack and this person who's taking him round the British Museum were so miles apart you couldn't believe it. But they were the leading there with their friends. Because I would never have dreamed of a thing like that. And so, I don't know why, right there in Bermondsey, with nobody to speak a word about it, I heard someone just drop a remark in Southwood Park when he was speaking from a platform about Greek. And I thought, I'd like to learn Greek. He said, you'd like to learn Greek. Well, I understand that you work at a bench, yes. You leave home at seven and you walk to the city, yes. And you get back home at eight o'clock at night, yes. And you want somebody to teach you Greek in Bermondsey after eight. Well, that's crying for the moon, isn't it? Why should I want it? Don't ask me, I said. And somebody said, try the Bermondsey settlement where Scott Midget had started. And I went there and they tried to dissuade me and say, well, wouldn't it be better to learn French or German? Oh, I said, I know all about my aunt's got pens down the garden, but, but I said, do you want classical Greek or New Testament Greek? Oh, I said, I don't know. They said, well, we don't know. Because I was obviously a boy 
or a young fellow that ought to be playing a jazz band or something in their estimation. That's all I was. So at last they put me in the Greek class of the New Testament. I wasn't a Christian. But I was sent to Booksellers Row by the teacher, which is now non-existent Booksellers Row, to get a second-hand Greek grammar. And while I was hunting through the box, a young man, I've never seen his face, I hope to see one day in glory, slipped a bit in my hand and invited me to go hear a lecture on sceptics and the Bible. Sceptics attracted me, not the Bible. For I'd been brought up in a home that was a happy one and upright one, but no place for God or Christ or the Bible. Didn't know a word about it, but I went. And I was nearly knocked flat by this man who so spoke about that book, I couldn't get away from it. So I went home and told my father. I didn't know what he'd say, but he was quite a good chum, my father. Left it at that. As I left that meeting that night, I shook hands with the speaker and I said, what are you going to talk about tomorrow night? He said, we'll have the good old gospel. Oh, I thought, I'm not going to there. That's a lot of hymn singing. I don't want that. But all day long, while I stood at the work, balancing, I thought, oh, I'll let him speak again. So I went. He started straight off. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Oh, I'd never heard it before, although I lived in London. Never heard it in my life. And then he challenged. He said, if anyone at the end of this gospel service has believed in Christ, will he stand up and say so? I looked round and I thought, there's about a thousand people here. I couldn't help myself. I had to stand up. I went home and I told my father what had happened again. He listened quite quietly. Now I wanted to know more, so I went to that Exeter Hall meeting the next night. And to my joy and surprise, my father was at the back of that hall with a face like a sheet. He responded and he stood up and said, I believe. So we were both went home together. And that series of gospel meetings was followed by a series of Bible expositions by Griffith Thomas, and to this day, I can see him now, it got me. He said, we're looking at the Gospel according to John. And I didn't know anything about the Gospel according to John. But he said, you'll find this is the structure of it. Here, ark at, ark at a word. He says, re- revelation, reception, rejection. You know, he came to his own. His own received him, not as many as received him, and I was going to sit for an examination, believe me, at the end of the term, but they didn't have enough to do it. And about seven years afterwards, Griffith Thomas wrote to me from the United States when he became president or principal of the Philadelphia Bible Training College and asked my opinion on certain problems. Would you believe it? And I wrote to him and gave my opinion and he printed it. Well, then he wrote the second time and I said, oh, I must tell this man and I told him. And he rejoiced. Don't you see, here's a leading that I knew nothing about. He does lead friends. He does shut doors. He does against all your inclinations. I didn't know what was being thrust upon me at that time. The Lord did. And so the time came after I'd had a tremendous discipline when I began to see the truth. And over 50 years ago, I wrote the first lines that ever printed 
in this connection. Acts 28, the dispensational frontier. Why it should be given to me, don't ask me, friends, I don't know. But isn't it a good thing to know that even in this modern day, you can look back and see in a pathway that you've tread, there's been a guidance there that you knew nothing of at the time. You only went step at a time, you didn't know why. But he doesn't need you, he doesn't leave you without leading. And so I felt it might be a word in season to some of you friends to know that it takes place now. Or we could go on up to this very minute and indicate things in our lives that have shown how he's gone before. Shut certain doors, made it look like disappointment, only to lead you to something better. So, I trust that this spotlight on the question of the Lord's leading may prove to be a word in season if, if to no one in the chapel, yet to someone who in some other sphere, perhaps in some other land, will realise that it's perfectly true today. And they'll sit back and they'll say, if the Lord is my shepherd, he leadeth me. I need not ask him to lead me. I will ask him to give me grace to follow. And as you study the word, he will speak through it as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord commanded Moses. And you can be sure of it because it's the consequence of a finished work as we had in Exodus. And that pillar of cloud by day and night never left that people even though they murmured sometimes and complained. And once you belong to the Lord, you have no reason, really, to say, Oh Lord, lead me. You have to say, Lord, I know you are leading me, but my heart sometimes turns in a wrong direction. Oh, give me grace to just consistently follow. I leave it with you, friends, and pray that I may have been guided, led, if you may like to put it, this night, to take this line for someone that I don't know anything about it will turn out to be a word in season that God has planned. And that will be the best answer we can give to anybody who says, why that subject this evening?